You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Thanks for tuning in to episode 11 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. All right. So we spent the last two episodes looking first at some rather unpleasant pro-slavery arguments, and then in the last show, making a fast pass through the abolitionist movement and showing its importance to the sectional unraveling that led to the Civil War. But now we want to return to the Compromise of 1850 and the Northern reaction to one specific aspect of it. If y'all remember, the Compromise of 1850 was originally proposed by Henry Clay, but it was ultimately shepherded to passage by Stephen Douglas, a senator from Illinois. Under the Compromise, California entered the Union as a free state, but then the Compromise allowed the territories of New Mexico and Utah to be organized according to popular sovereignty. And basically, popular sovereignty was the policy that said the people of a territory could vote on whether they would apply for admission to the Union as a free state or a slave state, and then the federal government would be bound by the people's decision. Right. The Compromise of 1850 also said that slaves could not be brought into the District of Columbia to be bought or sold. This turned out to be something of a hollow victory for anti-slavery advocates, though, since not only was slavery still tolerated in the nation's capital, but according to the fine print of the Compromise, slaves already within the district could continue to be bought and sold like before. To Stephen Douglas's surprise, the most controversial aspect of the Compromise was that it beefed up the old 1793 Fugitive Slave Law, which was based on Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution, and which mandated that states return fugitive slaves to their owners. Because of the old fugitive slave law, most runaway slaves just kept on going until they reached Canada. In Canada, of course, slavery was illegal, and the presumption of British law had always favored freedom. But the need for runaway slaves to head all the way to Canada changed in 1842. That's because over the years, northern public opinion had been growing more and more disenchanted with the old fugitive slave law, which allowed southern slave owners to pursue and retrieve runaway slaves, even in free states. And so public officials in the north had been offering pursuing slave hunters less and less cooperation, until in 1842, the Supreme Court in Prague versus Pennsylvania ruled that the old federal law didn't necessarily require northern magistrates or justices of the peace to cooperate with slave owners, especially in instances where slavery captures violated the state's due process laws. 
The result of the 1842 Supreme Court ruling was that quite a few northern states enacted personal liberty laws, which were used by many public officials in the north to obstruct the capture of fugitives, and in some instances they even prosecuted southern slave owners for kidnapping. Such measures infuriated Southerners, who were all for states' rights, of course, except when it was northern states' rights that stood in the way of slave owners chasing down their runaway property. Then Southerners were adamantly opposed to states' rights. Hmm. Well, where I come from, we call that hypocrisy. But anyway, the new and improved fugitive slave law that was part of the Compromise of 1850 endeavored to plug the holes that Prigg versus Pennsylvania ruling had put in the old 1793 law. And realizing this was the case, Yankee senators had attempted to attach amendments to the new law which would guarantee alleged fugitives the rights to testify on their own behalf, to habeas corpus, and to a jury trial. But Southern senators obstinately vetoed the amendments, saying that such hallmarks of American justice didn't apply to slaves. To quote James McPherson from his book Battle Cry of Freedom, The Civil War Era, he said, The Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 put the burden of proof on captured blacks, but gave them no legal power to prove their freedom. Instead, a claimant could bring an alleged fugitive before a federal commissioner a new office created by the law, to prove ownership by an affidavit from a slave state court or by the testimony of white witnesses. If the commissioner decided against the claimant, he would receive a fee of $5. If in favor, $10. This provision became notorious among abolitionists as a bribe to commissioners. The 1850 law also required U.S. marshals and deputies to help slave owners recapture their property and empowered marshals to deputize citizens on the spot to aid in seizing a fugitive and imposed stiff criminal penalties on anyone who harbored a fugitive or obstructed his capture. End quote. McPherson then shows how the operation of the law revealed that it was purposely designed to favor the slave owners. For example, in the first 15 months after the law's passage, federal commissioners returned 84 fugitives to slavery, but only released five. Most distressingly, the law contained no statute of limitations for runaways, so runaways who had lived in freedom in the North for many years could be captured and re-enslaved. In February 1851, slave catchers seized a black man in Madison, Indiana, while his wife and children looked on, and carried him back to an owner in Kentucky who claimed him as a slave who had run away 19 years before. Under the provisions of the law, a Maryland man asserted ownership of a Philadelphia woman whom he claimed had run away 22 years before. Astonishingly, he also claimed ownership of her six children born in Philadelphia. Fortunately, in this case, the federal commissioner found for the woman's freedom. Public captures and extraditions of runaway slaves helped turn public opinion in the North firmly against the new fugitive slave law. Northerners also deeply deeply resented the law's provision that federal marshals could call upon them to assist in the capture of fugitives. To quote Alan Gelso from his book, Fateful Lightning, A New History of the Civil War and Reconstruction, he said, This last provision was the most potentially explosive, for it virtually made every northerner an accomplice to the betrayal and seizure of runaway slaves. Northerners who had enjoyed little or no contact with slavery 
or he thought of slavery as merely an unpleasant moral abstraction, now were forced to consider how they would act if a slave owner or a federal marshal in hot pursuit of a runaway should summon them to join a federal slave-catching posse. End quote. Stephen Douglas had included the new fugitive slave law as part of the compromise as almost a throwaway concession to Southerners who were unhappy with the admission of California as a free state, and he was surprised at how badly he'd miscalculated the Northern reaction to it. For example, in September 1851, a Maryland slave owner named Edward Gorsuch and several of his relatives crossed into Pennsylvania in pursuit of four runaways. Gorsuch procured the aid of a federal marshal marshal and a posse, and they tracked the runaways to the home of William Parker, a free black man who lived in Christiana, Pennsylvania, a Quaker community. Inside Parker's home were not only the fugitives, but also about two dozen armed black men, all vowing in deadly earnest to resist the slave catchers. Two Quakers counseled the slave hunters and posse to retreat, but Gorsuch vehemently declared, I will have my property or go to hell. Well, Gorsuch got his wish, since gunfire did indeed break out, and when it was over, he lay dead, and his son was seriously wounded. Two other whites and two blacks were lightly wounded in what the press quickly dubbed the Battle of Christiana. Parker and the runaways fled for Canada, helped along the way by Frederick Douglass, who was then living in Rochester, New York, editing an anti-slavery newspaper. As he put them on a Great Lakes steamer that would take them to safety in Canada, one of the fugitives gave Douglas a memento he treasured all his life, Edward Gorsuch's pistol. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. While the incident at Christiana was one of the most dramatic cases of resistance to the Fugitive Slave Act, elsewhere across the North, posses were disrupted as they tracked runaways, jails and prisons were broken into to free captured fugitives, and juries declined to convict those who harbored fugitives or refused to cooperate in capture proceedings. And while several other well-publicized cases of opposition to the law didn't involve gunfire, they still became national events. 
For example, as soon as the law took effect, a slave owner in Georgia sent two bounty hunters to Boston to recapture a young black couple, William and Ellen Craft, who had gained celebrity after a daring escape to freedom two years earlier. In Boston, the Crafts had joined the church of Theodore Parker, whose congregation included several other fugitive slaves. When the slave catchers arrived in Boston in late 1850, they made loud boasts about getting the Crafts. But as things turned out, they returned south empty-handed. Reverend Parker hid Ellen Craft in his own house, where he kept a loaded revolver on his desk. And then William Craft found refuge in the home of a black abolitionist, who kept two kegs of gunpowder on his front porch, threatening to blow up his house rather than surrender William. During their five days in Boston, the two slave hunters were relentlessly harassed by local abolitionists and soon gave up their quest and left town. President Millard Fillmore raged against the Bostonians, denouncing their resistance to the new fugitive slave law and threatening to send in federal troops to help the craft's owner retrieve his property. Understandably, William and Ellen no longer felt safe in Boston, so arrangements were made for them to flee to England, where they remained until after the Civil War. At the close of the episode, Reverend Parker sent a defiant note to President Fillmore, saying, I would rather lie all my life in jail and starve there than refuse to protect one of these parishioners of mine. I must reverence the laws of God, come of that what will come. You cannot think that I am to stand by and see my own church carried off to slavery and do nothing. In 1854, another well-publicized fugitive incident took place in Boston. To quote from Alan Gelzo again in his book, Fateful Lightning. On May 24, 1854, an escaped Virginia slave named Anthony Burns was seized by three federal deputies as he walked home from the clothing store where he worked. White and black Bostonians at once assembled, and on the evening of May 26, a party of abolitionists led an assault on the prison where Burns was held, only to fail in their attempts to retrieve him. President Franklin Pierce sent in federal troops and Marines to ensure that Burns was put on a ship to carry him back to slavery. Two Bostonians actually offered to pay Burns market price and more if necessary to Burns' owner, but the Pierce administration was determined to return Burns for the symbolic importance of the gesture. So on June 2, 1854, while thousands of silent Bostonians looked on, Burns was marched to a waiting ship between files of soldiers. The Burns affair was a massive public disgrace, and it drove many Northerners to conclude that slavery itself was a disgrace. Amos Lawrence, a pro-compromise Whig, remembered that after the Burns affair, we went to bed one night old-fashioned conservatives and waked up stark mad abolitionists, end quote. Such dramatic incidents served to fuel the fire of northern resentment over the fugitive slave law, but what truly fanned the flames of northern outrage over the injustices of slavery was a book that came out in the spring of 1852. In reaction to the fugitive slave law, Harriet Beecher Stowe, a member of a prominent abolitionist family, wrote the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin. Well, actually, the full title of the book is Uncle Tom's Cabin, or Life Among the Lowly. And in the sentimental writing style that was typical of the period, Stowe movingly and effectively demonstrated the horrors of slavery and examined the conflicting attitudes of whites toward the South's peculiar institution. Harriet Beecher was born in 1811 in Connecticut, 
one of 11 children of a prominent Congregationalist preacher, Lyman Beecher. Harriet's brother, Henry Ward Beecher, would earn fame as a Brooklyn-based abolitionist. Harriet's sister, Catherine, founded a school in Cincinnati, Ohio, and Harriet went there to start a career as a teacher. In 1836, she married a theology professor, Calvin Ellis Stowe. During the 18 years she lived in Cincinnati, just across the Ohio River from the slave state of Kentucky, Harriet came to know slave owners, and she also met fugitive slaves fleeing, fleeing northward to freedom. In 1850, her husband was appointed to a professorship at Bowdoin College in Maine, and it was there that Harriet Beecher Stowe started to write her book about slavery. She later said, I wrote what I did because as a woman, as a mother, I was oppressed and brokenhearted with the sorrows and injustices I saw. Because as a Christian, I felt the dishonor to Christianity. Because as a lover of my country, I trembled at the coming day of wrath. Initially, it was serialized in 1851 and 1852 in an abolitionist paper, and then Uncle Tom's Cabin was published in book form in 1852, and 300,000 copies were sold in the United States alone during its first year of publication. Now, keep in mind, this was when the population of the U.S. was about 25 million people, and over 3 million of that number were slaves. So to sell 300,000 copies of a book at that time was simply astounding. Uncle Tom's Cabin jolted the conscience of the North, especially within the Christian community, but it struck a raw nerve and provoked bitter outrage in the South. There it was denounced as abolitionist propaganda, banned in most slave states, and held up as a prime example of inexcusable northern attacks on southern honor and domestic institutions. Southern writers quickly retaliated with their own pro-slavery novels, such as Mary Henderson Eastman's Aunt Phyllis's Cabin, or Southern Life as it is, which was published in 1852. Needless to say, Aunt Phyllis's Cabin didn't have quite the same impact on American society as did Harriet Beecher Stowe's groundbreaking book. When Abraham Lincoln was grappling with the problem of slavery and emancipation in the summer of 1862, he borrowed a book from the Library of Congress called A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin. That was actually a subsequent volume by Stowe containing documentation on which she based her novel. In a widely repeated and possibly fictional anecdote, when President Lincoln met Mrs. Stowe at the White House in late 1862, he greeted her with the words, So you're the little woman who wrote the book that made this great war. Whether or not that story is true, there was no doubt that what Harriet Beecher Stowe had done with her novel and its vivid characters was to humanize and individualize the face of slavery. In so doing, she effectively convinced thousands upon thousands of Northerners that slavery's very existence was a moral blight on the soul of America. So, with this episode, we wanted to highlight how the attention-grabbing captures of runaway slaves and how the incredible impact of Uncle Tom's Cabin made the fugitive slave law a divisive sectional issue. Northerners, who were otherwise happy to leave slavery alone where it existed, so long as it stayed where it was, now discovered they were legally obligated to cooperate with the South in supporting and maintaining slavery. And as their resentment of the fugitive slave law grew into outrage and righteous indignation over the assault on the integrity of justice and freedom, 
Northerners began to question the entire compromise of 1850. Well, all right, so with that as background, next week we'll talk about the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 and its fateful consequences, and how the bitter conflict in Kansas contributed to the steadily widening sectional rift between North and South. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Uncle Tom's Cabin, or Life Among the Lowly, by Harriet Beecher Stowe. And, I mean really, Uncle Tom's Cabin is one of those books that deserves to be read, not simply because it's a classic and one of the best-selling books of all time, but because it's a book that changed history. Arguably, no other book has ever had such a profound impact on public opinion in America. Now, a word of caution, if you do pick up Uncle Tom's Cabin today, it's pretty obvious it's dated, and by that I mean in its style, and also that it's reflecting the attitudes of white 19th century America, rather than our more enlightened 21st century politically correct point of view. And yes, that was said tongue-in-cheek. But anyway, the point is, you need to approach Uncle Tom's Cabin with the realization that you're reading a piece of historical literature, not a modern-day New York Times bestseller. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations on the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. The music at the start and finish of this episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and it's used with the kind permission of the good folks at Spiritwood Music. We thank them for that, and thank all of you guys for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.